Hello and welcome to Leftist Reading, a podcast where I'm a leftist and I read things. Today we're finishing off a chapter from Women, Race and Class by Angela Y. Davis. We're pretty near the end of the book, too. This chapter is about reproductive rights, and specifically about medical procedures and systems involved with it. As such, there are content warnings in this chapter for abortion, self-induced abortion, death from a medical procedure, eugenics, racism, ableism, forced sterilization, forced sterilization as governmental policy, medical abuse, and medical malpractice. I tried to cover a lot of ground with those warnings, but I think it should paint a picture of what you can expect from this chapter. As I will often say, these are not necessarily discussed in depth, but all of these are going to be touched upon in some way and referred to. So be aware that that is in this chapter if that's a concern. With that, let's finish out this chapter. When Margaret Sanger embarked upon her lifelong crusade for birth control, a term she coined and popularized, it appeared as though the racist and anti-working class overtones of the previous period might possibly be overcome. For Margaret Higgins Sanger came from a working class background herself and was well acquainted with the devastating pressures of poverty. When her mother died, at the age of 48, she had borne no less than 11 children. Sanger's later memories of her own family's troubles would confirm her belief that working-class women had a special need for the right to plan and space their pregnancies autonomously. Her affiliation, as an adult, with the socialist movement was a further cause for hope that the birth control campaign would move in a more progressive direction. When Margaret Sanger joined the Socialist Party in 1912, she assumed the responsibility of recruiting women from New York's working women's clubs into the party. Footnote 18. The Call, the party's paper, carried her articles on the women's page. She wrote a series entitled, What Every Mother Should Know, another called What Every Girl Should Know, and she did on-the-spot coverage of strikes involving women. Sanger's familiarity with New York's working-class districts was a result of her numerous visits as a trained nurse to the poor sections of the city. During these visits, she points out in her autobiography, she met countless numbers of women who desperately desired knowledge about birth control. According to Sanger's autobiographical reflections, one of the many visits she made as a nurse to New York's Lower East Side convinced her to undertake a personal crusade for birth control. Answering one of her routine calls, she discovered that 28-year-old Sadie Sachs had attempted to abort herself. Once the crisis had passed, the young woman asked the attending physician to give her advice on birth prevention. As Sanger relates the story, the doctor recommended that she, quote, tell her husband, Jake, to sleep on the roof. Footnote 19. I glanced quickly to Mrs. Sachs. Even through my sudden tears, I could see stamped on her face an expression of absolute despair. We simply looked at each other, saying no word until the door closed behind the doctor. Then she lifted her thin, blue-veined hands and clasped them beseechingly. He can't understand. He's only a man. But you do, don't you? Please tell me the secret and I'll never breathe it to a soul. Please. End quote. Footnote 20. Three months later, Sadie Sachs died from another self-induced abortion. That night, Margaret Sanger says, she vowed to devote all her energy toward the acquisition and dissemination of contraceptive measures. Quote, 
I went to bed, knowing that no matter what it might cost, I was finished with palliatives and superficial cures. I resolved to seek out the root of evil, to do something to change the destiny of mothers whose miseries were as vast as the sky. End quote. Footnote 21. During the first phase of Sanger's birth control crusade, she maintained her affiliation with the Socialist Party, and the campaign itself was closely associated with the rising militancy of the working class. Her staunch supporters included Eugene Debs, Elizabeth Gurley Flynn, and Emma Goldman, who respectively represented the Socialist Party, the International Workers of the World, and the Anarchist Movement. Margaret Sanger, in turn, expressed the anti-capitalist commitment of her own movement within the pages of its journal, Woman Rebel, which was dedicated to the interests of working women. Footnote 22. Personally, she continued to march on picket lines with striking workers and publicly condemned the outrageous assaults on striking workers. In 1914, for example, when the National Guard massacred scores of Chicano miners in Ludlow, Colorado, Sanger joined the labor movement in exposing John D. Rockefeller's role in this attack. Footnote 23. Unfortunately, the alliance between the birth control campaign and the radical labor movement did not enjoy a long life. While socialists and other working class activists continued to support the demand for birth control, it did not occupy a central place in their overall strategy and Sanger herself began to underestimate the centrality of capitalist exploitation in her analysis of poverty, arguing that too many children caused workers to fall into their miserable predicament. Moreover, quote, women were inadvertently perpetuating the exploitation of the working class, she believed, by continually flooding the labor market with new workers. End quote, footnote 24. Ironically, Sanger may have been encouraged to adopt this position by the neo-Malthusian ideas embraced in some socialist circles. Such outstanding figures of the European socialist movement as Anatole France and Rosa Luxemburg had proposed a birth strike to prevent the continued flow of labour into the capitalist market. Footnote 25. When Margaret Sanger severed her ties with the Socialist Party for the purpose of building an independent birth control campaign, she and her followers became more susceptible than ever to the anti-black and anti-immigrant propaganda of the times. Like their predecessors, who had been deceived by the race-suicide propaganda, the advocates of birth control began to embrace the prevailing racist ideology. The fatal influence of the eugenics movement would soon destroy the progressive potential of the birth control campaign. During the first decades of the 20th century, the rising popularity of the eugenics movement was hardly a fortuitous development. Eugenic ideas were perfectly suited to the ideological needs of the young monopoly capitalists. Imperialist incursions in Latin America and in the Pacific needed to be justified, as did the intensified exploitation of black workers in the South and immigrant workers in the North and West. The pseudoscientific racial theories associated with the eugenics campaign furnished dramatic apologies for the conduct of the young monopolies. As a result, this movement won the unhesitating support of such leading capitalists as the Carnegies, the Harrimans, and the Kelloggs. Footnote 26. By 1919, the eugenic influence on the birth control movement was unmistakably clear. In an article published by Margaret Sanger in the American Birth Control League's journal, she defined the chief issue of birth control as more children from the fit, less from the unfit. 
Footnote 27. Around this time, the ABCL heartily welcomed the author of The Rising Tide of Color Against White World Supremacy into its inner sanctum. Footnote 28. Lothrop Stoddard, Harvard professor and theoretician of the eugenics movement, was offered a seat on the board of directors. In the page of the ABCL's journal, articles by Guy Irving Birch, director of the American Eugenics Society, began to appear. Birch advocated birth control as a weapon to, quote, prevent the American people from being replaced by alien or negro stock, whether it be by immigration or by overly high birth rates among others in this country. End quote, footnote 29. By 1932, the Eugenics Society could boast that at least 26 states had passed compulsory sterilization laws and that thousands of unfit persons had already been surgically prevented from reproducing. Footnote 30. Margaret Sanger offered her public approval of this development. Quote, Morons, mental defectives, epileptics, illiterates, paupers, unemployables, criminals, prostitutes, and dope fiends. End quote. Ought to be surgically sterilized, she argued in a radio talk. Footnote 31. She did not wish to be so intransigent as to leave them with no choice in the matter. If they wished, she said they should be able to choose a lifelong segregated existence into labor camps. Within the American Birth Control League, the call for birth control among black people acquired the same racist edge as the call for compulsory sterilization. In 1939, its successor, the Birth Control Federation of America, planned a Negro project. In the Federation's words, quote, The mass of Negroes, particularly in the South, still breed carelessly and disastrously, with the result that the increase among Negroes, even more than among whites, is from that portion of the population least fit and least able to rear children properly. End quote. Footnote 32. Calling for the recruitment of black ministers to lead local birth control committees, the Federation's proposal suggested that black people should be rendered as vulnerable as possible to their birth control propaganda. Quote, we do not want word to get out, wrote Margaret Sanger in a letter to a colleague, that we want to exterminate the Negro population, and the minister is the man who can straighten out that idea if it ever occurs to any of their more rebellious members. End quote. Footnote 33. This episode in the birth control movement confirmed the ideological victory of the racism associated with eugenic ideas. It had been robbed of its progressive potential, advocating for people of color not the individual right to birth control, but rather the racist strategy of population control. The birth control campaign would be called upon to serve in an essential capacity in the execution of the US government's imperialist and racist population policy. The abortion rights activists of the early 1970s should have examined the history of their movement. Had they done so, they might have understood why so many of their black sisters adopted a posture of suspicion toward their cause. They might have understood how important it was to undo the racist deeds of their predecessors, who had advocated birth control, as well as compulsory sterilization, as a means of eliminating the unfit sectors of the population. Consequently, the young white feminists might have been more receptive to the suggestion that their campaign for abortion rights include a vigorous condemnation of sterilization abuse, which had become more widespread than ever. 
It was not until the media decided that the casual sterilization of two black girls in Montgomery, Alabama was a scandal worth reporting that the Pandora's box of sterilization abuse was finally flung open. But by the time the case of the Ralph sisters broke, it was practically too late to influence the politics of the abortion rights movement. It was the summer of 1973, and the Supreme Court decision legalizing abortion had already been announced in January. Nevertheless, the urgent need for mass opposition to sterilization abuse became tragically clear. The facts surrounding the Ralph sisters' story were horrifyingly simple. Minnie Lee, who was 12 years old, and Mary Alice, who was 14, had been unsuspectingly carted into an operating room, where surgeons irrevocably robbed them of their capacity to bear children. Footnote 34. The surgery had been ordered by the HEW-funded Montgomery Community Action Committee, after it was discovered that Depro-Provera, a drug previously administered to the girls as a birth prevention measure, caused cancer in test animals. Footnote 35. After the Southern Poverty Law Center filed suit on behalf of the Ralph sisters, the girl's mother revealed that she had unknowingly consented to the operation, having been deceived by the social workers who handled her daughter's case. They had asked Mrs. Ralph, who was unable to read, to put her X on a document the contents of which were not described to her. She assumed, she said, that it authorized the continued Depro-Provera injections. As she subsequently learned, she had authorized the surgical sterilization of her daughters. Footnote 36. In the aftermath of the publicity exposing the Ralph sisters' case, similar episodes were brought to light. In Montgomery alone, 11 girls, also in their teens, had been similarly sterilized. HEW-funded birth control clinics in other states, as it turned out, had also subjected young girls to sterilization abuse. Moreover, individual women came forth with equally outrageous stories. In the aftermath of the publicity exposing the Ralph sisters' case, similar episodes were brought to light. In Montgomery alone, 11 girls, also in their teens, had been similarly sterilized. HEW-funded birth control clinics in other states, as it turned out, had also subjected young girls to sterilization abuse. Moreover, individual women came forth with equally outrageous stories. Niall Ruth Cox, for example, filed suit against the state of North Carolina. At the age of 18, eight years before the suit, Officials had threatened to discontinue her family's welfare payments if she refused to submit to surgical sterilization. Footnote 37. Before she assented to the operation, she was assured that her infertility would be temporary. Footnote 38. Niall Ruth Cox's lawsuit was aimed at a state which had diligently practiced the theory of eugenics. Under the auspices of the Eugenics Commission of North Carolina, so it was learned, 7,686 sterilizations had been carried out since 1933. Although the operations were justified as measures to prevent the reproduction of mentally deficient persons, about 5,000 of the sterilized persons had been black. Footnote 39. According to Brenda Fagan Fausto, the ACLU attorney representing Nilerus Cox, North Carolina's recent record was not much better. Quote, as far as I can determine, the statistics reveal that since 1964, approximately 65% of the women sterilized in North Carolina were black, and approximately 35% were white. End quote. 
Footnote 40. As the flurry of publicity exposing sterilization abuse revealed, the neighboring state of South Carolina had been the site of further atrocities. Eighteen women from Aiken, South Carolina, charged that they had been sterilized by a Dr. Clovis Pierce during the early 1970s. The sole obstetrician in that small town, Pierce had consistently sterilized Medicaid recipients with two or more children. According to a nurse in his office, Dr. Pierce insisted that pregnant welfare women will have to submit to voluntary sterilization if they wanted him to deliver their babies. Footnote 41. While he was tired of people running around and having babies and paying for them with my taxes. Footnote 42. Dr. Pierce received some $60,000 in taxpayers' money for the sterilizations he performed. During his trial, he was supported by the South Carolina Medical Association, whose members declared that doctors, quote, have a moral and legal right to insist on sterilization permission before accepting a patient, if it is done on the initial visit. End quote. Footnote 43. Revelations of sterilization abuse during that time exposed the complicity of the federal government. At first, the Department of Health, Education, and Welfare claimed that approximately 16,000 women and 8,000 men had been sterilized in 1972 under the auspices of federal programs. Footnote 44. Later, however, these figures underwent a drastic revision. Carl Schultz, director of the HEW's Population Affairs Office, estimated that between 100,000 and 200,000 sterilizations had actually been funded that year by the federal government. Footnote 45. During Hitler's Germany, incidentally, 250,000 sterilizations were carried out under the Nazis' hereditary health law. Footnote 46. Is it possible that the record of the Nazis throughout the years of their reign may have been almost equaled by US government-funded sterilizations in the space of a single year? Given the historical genocide inflicted on the native population of the United States, one would assume that Native American Indians would be exempted from the government's sterilization campaign. But according to Dr. Connie Uri's testimony in a Senate committee hearing, by 1976, some 24% of all Indian women of childbearing age had been sterilized. Footnote 47. Quote, Our bloodlines are being stopped. The Choctaw physician told the Senate committee, Our unborn will not be born. This is genocidal to our people. End quote. Footnote 48. According to Dr. Yuri, the Indian Health Service Hospital in Claremore, Oklahoma, had been sterilizing one out of every four women giving birth in that federal facility. Footnote 49. Native American Indians are special targets of government propaganda on sterilization. In one of the HEW pamphlets aimed at Indian people, there is a sketch of a family with ten children and one horse and another sketch of a family with one child and ten horses. The drawings are supposed to imply that more children mean more poverty, and fewer children mean wealth, as if the ten horses owned by the one-child family had been magically conjured up by birth control and sterilization surgery. The domestic population policy of the US government has an undeniably racist edge. Native American, Chicana, Puerto Rican, and black women continue to be sterilized in disproportionate numbers. According to a national fertility survey conducted in 1970 by Princeton University's Office of Population Control, 
20% of all married black women have been permanently sterilized. Footnote 50. Approximately the same percentage of Chicana women had been rendered surgically infertile. Footnote 51. Moreover, 43% of the women sterilized through federally subsidized programs were black. Footnote 52. The astonishing number of Puerto Rican women who have been sterilized reflects a special government policy that can be traced back to 1939. In that year, President Roosevelt's Interdepartmental Committee on Puerto Rico issued a statement attributing the island's economic problems to the phenomenon of overpopulation. Footnote 53. This committee proposed that efforts be undertaken to reduce the birth rate to no more than the level of the death rate. Footnote 54. Soon afterward, an experimental sterilization campaign was undertaken in Puerto Rico. Although the Catholic Church initially opposed this experiment and forced the cessation of the program in 1946, it was converted during the early 1950s to the teachings and practice of population control. Footnote 55. In this period, over 150 birth control clinics were opened, resulting in a 20% decline in population growth by the mid-1960s. Footnote 56. By the 1970s, over 35% of all Puerto Rican women of childbearing age had been surgically sterilized. Footnote 57. According to Bonnie Mass, a serious critic of the U.S. government's population policy, quote, If purely mathematical projections are to be taken seriously, if the present rate of sterilization of 19,000 monthly were to continue, then the island's population of workers and peasants could be extinguished within the next 10 or 20 years, establishing, for the first time in world history, a systemic use of population control capable of eliminating an entire generation of people. End quote. Footnote 58. During the 1970s, the devastating implications of the Puerto Rican experiment began to emerge with unmistakable clarity. In Puerto Rico, the presence of corporations in the highly automated metallurgical and pharmaceutical industries had exacerbated the problem of unemployment. The prospect of an ever-larger army of unemployed workers was one of the main incentives for the mass sterilization program. Inside the United States today, enormous numbers of people of color, and especially racially oppressed youth, have become part of a pool of permanently unemployed workers. It is hardly coincidental, considering the Puerto Rican example, that the increasing incidence of sterilization has kept pace with the higher rates of unemployment. As growing numbers of white people suffer the brutal consequences of unemployment, they can also expect to become targets of the official sterilization propaganda. The prevalence of sterilization abuse during the latter 1970s may be greater than ever before. Although the Department of Health, Education, and Welfare issued guidelines in 1974, which were ostensibly designed to prevent involuntary sterilizations, the situation has nonetheless deteriorated. When the American Civil Liberties Union's Reproduction Freedom Project conducted a survey of teaching hospitals in 1975, they discovered that 40% of those institutions were not even aware of the regulations issued by HEW. Footnote 59. Only 30% of the hospitals examined by the ACLU were even attempting to comply with the guidelines. Footnote 60. The 1977 Hyde Amendment has added yet another dimension to coercive sterilization practices. As a result of this law passed by Congress, 
Federal funds for abortions were eliminated in all cases but those involving rape and the risk of death or severe illness. According to Sandra Salazar of the California Department of Public Health, the first victim of the Hyde Amendment was a 27-year-old Chicana woman from Texas. She died as a result of an illegal abortion in Mexico, shortly after Texas discontinued government-funded abortions. There have been many more victims, women for whom sterilization has become the only alternative to the abortions, which are currently beyond their reach. Sterilizations continue to be federally funded and free to poor women on demand. Over the last decade, the struggle against sterilization abuse has been waged primarily by Puerto Rican, Black, Chicana, and Native American women. Their cause has not yet been embraced by the women's movement as a whole. Within organizations representing the interests of middle-class white women, there has been a certain reluctance to support the demands of the campaign against sterilization abuse. For these women are often denied their individual rights to be sterilized when they desire to take this step. While women of color are urged at every turn to become permanently infertile, white women enjoying prosperous economic conditions are urged by the same forces to reproduce themselves. They therefore sometimes consider the waiting period and other details of the demand for informed consent to sterilization as further inconveniences for women like themselves. Yet whatever the inconveniences for white middle-class women, a fundamental reproductive right of racially oppressed and poor women is at stake. Sterilization abuse must be ended. And that concludes our reading for this week. A lot of what I could say about this chapter would be a repeat about underlining the importance of intersectionality and the ways in which campaigns will fail if they refuse to take it into account. But in particular, I do find it striking the way in which a campaign for rights can be weaponized when it is not being fought with a distinct understanding of intersectionality. The usual culprits, white wealthy women, have a very specific and narrow understanding of what they want, what their situation is, and what they are lacking, that is devoid of understanding of other people. And since they are fixated on only a particular and narrow area, and because they for the most part make up the movement, it is only concerned with the base level legality of abortion, without providing supports, without making abortion free and accessible, and combating the prejudices and biases that would prevent even free and accessible abortions from being actually accessible. Instead, you even get the reverse, where because of the way systems are set up, because of governmental policy having its own biases and intentions, you will have women who are oppressed, and part of their oppression is encouraging them to get irreversible sterilization procedures, while white women, because of their particular viewpoint on things, see sterilizations as being obfuscated and difficult to access, and that's actually part of the same oppression. It's the same goal and intention that wants certain people to reproduce more and certain other people to reproduce much less. But instead of seeing the whole picture and understanding this, instead you have white wealthy women who are concerned with not wanting to make sterilization more difficult to achieve because they have difficulty already that is systemic, but in a different way. It is systemic because the doctors want to deter them, not because it is illegal or expensive or 
it is not structurally prevented from them accessing it. So they see it as difficult purely because it is being obfuscated from them without understanding the ways in which it is being pushed, both in terms of propaganda and in terms of literally forced upon other women. And that's it for this week. We're approaching the end of the book, so if you have questions, comments, corrections about the book in general, thoughts, etc., or if you have suggestions or ideas about things I could read in future, whether it's on the show or even just backup or side material, you can email leftistreading at gmail.com, and you can contact the show on Twitter at leftistreading. The show is hosted on the Abnormal Mapping Network. You can go to abnormalmapping.com to find lots of other leftist podcasts and support the show at patreon.com slash abnormalmapping. Our intro and outro music is Decisions by Eric Medias. You can find it and more of his work on soundimage.org. That's all for this week. Thank you for listening and keep reading.